Welcome to a new episode of Scientific Entrepreneurship. Many ideas need an incubator, accelerator space to be tried and tested before they can become a minimum viable product or could generate promising results. These tangible accomplishments can then be leveraged by entrepreneurs to raise funds from investors. Incubators and accelerators are one of the many resources available to entrepreneurs. One of the well-known resources available to life sciences companies in California is the California Institute for Quantitative Biosciences, or QB3. QB3 was founded in late 2000 by Governor Gray Davis. Its mission is to grow the California bioeconomy. QB3 helps entrepreneurs build products and services that include medicines, medical devices, research tools, and genomic technologies that will eventually benefit society. Our guest today, Dr. Ioana Ane, is the Entrepreneurship Program Manager and Scientific Analyst at QB3. Ioana has a PhD in Chemical Biology from the University of California at Berkeley. Today, we will talk with Ioana about QB3 and the various resources available to biomedical entrepreneurs at QB3. And we'll also touch upon her transition from being a grad student to an analyst at QB3. Welcome to the podcast, Joanna. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what is QB3 and what does it do? It's a very intense question. So QB3 was started about 20 years ago by the state of California. The governor at that time had the vision to create an entity that will help early stage life science startups. And they gave us this broad mission of helping. So we had to figure out how do we actually do that. So over time, we evolved different programs to try and put together resources for these first time entrepreneurs who are still figuring out what to do next. And we did that by bringing in experts in different fields to mentor them and help them out. Also, incorporation assistance through law firms that will do that process for them. And other office hours, seminars, and workshops that really address different topics and try to help them move forward. So we're basically, in a nutshell, we're the nursery for life science startups in California. Got it. So that's an incubator space. Actually, incubator is a part of what we do, but not the only thing. So that is a more concrete thing that you can see with your eyes. But what we do behind the scenes is actually a lot of connecting of resources to entrepreneurs. So we help them polish their deck. We help them write grants. We help them connect with consultants in different topics, with accountants, with industry experts, partnering days. So there's a lot of programs beyond the incubator space that you see. Hopefully, by the end of this conversation, we'll get to know a lot more. Tell us about your role in QB3. Yeah, so QB3 is a very small team. We're about eight people. So everybody does a little bit of everything. It's just like a startup. We try to stay very lean and focused. So my role is to be the first point of contact for startups that come to us. So what I do is I try to to listen to their story and to their needs, and then to match that with the list of resources that we have. I usually explain certain topics at the one-on-one level, like IP licensing or equity distribution or how to build a deck. And then as they need me, I continue meeting with them and helping them on their journey. I also do a lot of the 
matchmaking in our programs like the partnering days, the office hours, and I also run the workshops. So a little bit of everything. I'm usually the first point of contact and then continue working with the teams for as long as they need us. Okay, when you say startups come to you, does that mean they're already incorporated and they come to you like, or do they have an idea and they, they come to you? Yeah, we have a mixture. So some of the companies are incorporated and they have very specific needs. So for example, if they know they want to write a grant, then they can come just for our grant workshop and get support there. Mm -hmm. For the uh, majority of teams, they're actually pre-incorporation. So these can be grad students or faculty or postdocs. They have an idea. They think their um, project is ready for, uh, for being commercialized. So they'll come to us to really understand what's next. What does it mean to be incorporated? What are their options? The pros and cons, the timing, the conflict of interest. So there are a lot of questions that we handle before they actually become a company. So that's why I was saying it's kind of a nursery because we really deal with very, very early stage ideas and we shepherd them through their first couple of years. Okay, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about your journey from being a grad student to someone who is in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So how did you get there? Yeah, well, by uh, by random uh, chance, so what can I say? Uh, sometimes serendipity. Like, yeah, serendipity. So I actually always envision myself as a scientist. So I got my PhD in the hopes of um, becoming a bench scientist at one of the biotechs in the Bay Area, um, and contributing towards a, an oncology drug or something like that. In the meantime, my colleague, um, uh, you know, so she was my roommate in college. She had the more entrepreneurial mindset and she wanted to start a business with me. So the first thing I did was to Google what startup was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, then um, once I, I learned more about it, I joined a, a club at Berkeley that was called the Berkeley Postdoctoral Entrepreneurial uh, Program. So that had a series of seminars where they would bring in speakers to share their stories. And that's how I started getting more and more interested in this. And then I, I found about this opportunity at QB3 and I applied for the job and I was fortunate enough that they picked me. So then a lot of it was learning on the job from my colleagues and, and from the people I interact with and uh, figuring stuff out. Got it. And what kind of companies do you interact with? Uh, because you have a PhD in chemistry or chemical biology, do you just interact with companies in that space or do you interact with everyone? No, actually, I've been very fortunate that the the breadth of companies has been immense. Um, so QB3 does um, anything that has to do with life sciences. So that in, includes medical devices, uh, therapeutics, diagnostics, some food tech, some ad tech, um, some research tools. So I've seen companies that develop a better PCR. I've seen um, companies that have um, some kind of pump you know, that would do a more efficient dialysis. I've seen companies dealing with hearing loss or with um, diagnostic for endometriosis and anything in between. So it's been just so amazing to see all these ideas and all these concepts move towards becoming a product. Nice. Yeah, that's a breadth of activity that goes on at QB3. Yeah. So what, what do you think PhD students should do if they want to get into the entrepreneurial space? Yeah, I think, you know, the PhD actually sets you up really well for becoming an entrepreneur because you are learning new things every day and you're tackling problems that 
don't have a solution yet, right? Like you're the one who, who is creating that solution. So entrepreneurship is a bit the same way. So you have to figure out what's your path forward. There are some tracks, you know, so some people ahead of you who have figured this out, but you still have to learn an enormous amount. Um, and you have to be open to challenges and open to the unknown. Um, there are a lot of books and resources for entrepreneurship, but I think the biggest thing you have to do is to change your mindset and just adopt this kind of can-do attitude and, you know, ask a lot of questions and realize what you're good at and what you're not good at and how you can bring those skills to the table. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely useful. And let's go back and talk a little bit about QB3 itself. So. Mm -hmm. Now, should the founders be a part of the UC system? Because I read online that it's it supports founders from UCSF, UC Berkeley, and UC Santa Cruz. Yeah, so actually, um, we have the, the whole California's jurisdiction, if you will. So okay. since we were funded by the state, we can help people from all the way down to San Diego or Sacramento or somewhere in the valley, so anywhere in California. Now, the UC system is our home. So I mm -hmm. am a UCSF employee and, you know, we get our benefits and everything through them. So we do try to give VIP treatment to the UC affiliates. Um, however, we can work with Stanford and we mm -hmm. can work with community colleges and other people from industry because we have that breadth of um, activity. You know, we're at the interface between investors and industry and service providers and academics and entrepreneurs. So we we give preferential treatment, but we can work with people outside of the UC system. That's good to know. And I think because the UC system is a major sort of academic community, I think that's where more, most of your applications should come from, right? Yeah, we do have a very tight connection with the UC system and a lot of um, students and faculty come through us to ask for advice and to help, uh, you know, move forward some projects. But, you know, we've been fortunate, we've uh, been around for 20 years, so people outside of the UC system and even outside of the US have heard of us. So we've interacted with many, many people, including all the way to Malaysia or Australia or France. So it's, uh, you know, we've, we've expanded our scope uh, a little bit broader than that. Got it. And so are your services for a fee or are they free? Yeah, so most of our services in kind of like the consulting type, you know, when we sit down and work with entrepreneurs, that is complimentary. And what we have fees for is the Startup in the Box program. There's a one-time membership fee. Mm -hmm. um, for UC affiliates, that's only $250. For people outside of the UC system, it's $350. So that's one time. It's not a yearly membership. Yeah. Um, and then for some of our events like seminars or symposia, we will, we will have a nominal fee, usually around $10. So mm -hmm. it's meant to more show commitment for showing up than, you know, be a, a profit. And um, what we've seen actually from a lot of our entrepreneurs, they're very grateful that they get opportunities to interact with investors for free or almost free, while a lot of different, um, you know, for-profit entities will charge, you know, ridiculous tickets to go to conferences and present. And these tickets can literally be thousands of dollars. And for a startup, that can be very, very difficult. Sure. I agree. And 
does QB3 have a space where entrepreneurs can come and work and test the ideas? Yeah, so we have incubators, um, which are basically lab spaces that are for rent. Um, they are in high demand, so usually there's a wait list. Um, and we have five locations. Each of them have different um, capabilities. We also are aware of other locations, so we can recommend people to go in a different uh, space if we don't have the space for them. So we work both as landlords and as consultants for the companies to find the space that fits them. And since we're a nonprofit, our job is re really to, to help them find a home. So it's less about us getting paid and it's more about them being able to run their experiments. Okay. And so let's talk a little bit about how to get into QB3. So you mentioned that you're the first point of contact. Let's say I have an idea. So should I just come to you and say, hey, I have this idea or should I prepare like a, a business case and then come to you? Or, or should I really you know, prepare a business case, have a proof of concept and then come to you? So we interact with people really early on and then we have multiple touch points. So let's say I'll meet with a team of grad students and uh, we'll go over the idea briefly and then six months later they'll come back and they'll say, hey, actually now we're ready to incorporate what do we do on the logistics side? You know, it's not just the science now, but we literally have to incorporate and create a company and um, uh, in the bank account and all of that. So um, you can come to us as early as you like, and we're happy to work with teams. Um, usually I'll provide more information, more reading materials or um, kind of references to other sources um, so people can educate themselves and move forward. Um, there is a, an application online for Startup in a Box and for inquiries about incubator space, but also our direct contact information, including the email and the phone number on our website. So I'm happy to work with people. I've worked with you know, high school students who have an idea. I've worked with wow. faculty still playing around with something, um, but they never applied for grant funding when they never actually did it. So we're happy to work with people really early on and kind of tell them what's ahead of them. So that helps them uh, plan better. Sure. And are there any application cycles to get into QB3 or it's all year round? It's all year round. So our doors are open, you know, except for major holidays. But um, sure. we only work with people throughout the year. Um, and we will have certain things that are on a cycle. For example, we have the so-called pitch summits, mm -hmm. which are basically a more um, structured approach to selecting companies. And then once we get to the top 10, we throw even more resources at them. So, you know, we have a large pool of companies in the hundreds to thousands of companies that we interact very loosely as they need us. And then for these top 10 each year, we have in-kind service providers and um, potential investors that interact with them more closely. So these are usually a little bit more mature, more well-structured companies, and we interact with them much more often. So, but for the rest of it, you know, it's as, as it comes year round, I call it a buffet. You know, we advertise the buffet. This is what we mm -hmm. have on the menu this week. And if you see something you like, you just come and join us. And if you don't, then, you know, look for the next email. Okay. Sounds fair. And what does QB3 look for in an application? Like you mentioned, there is an application for a startup in a box program. So yeah. 
So the eligibility criteria is basically, you know, that there is activity in California. So unfortunately, if the team is out of Texas or out of Mexico, you know, it would be hard to interact with them. We might send them to a different uh, resource and they have to be in the life sciences. So sometimes we get applications, you know, there was one about making a hotel in space and it sounds okay. like a very exciting idea, but unfortunately we don't know anything about that. So mm -hmm. we weren't able to interact with them. But if it is something in the therapeutics, diagnostics, medical devices, food and ag tech, research tools, usually we'll have something for them and we can interact with them. We love working with teams that are open to feedback. So a lot of times, you know, people think they know everything. So it's kind of hard to help them progress if they don't open their sure. mind to feedback. Um, but other than that, we literally work with almost anyone. Um, for the limited resources, like the pitch summits, the office hours that have a limited number of slots, we will try to pick the more competitive, well-structured um, teams that have you know, a little bit more crystallized ideas about what they want to do. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you worked with companies in Malaysia, and right now you're telling us that the company needs to be physically present in California. So yeah. could yeah, you clarify, clarify that? that? Yeah, let me clarify that. So again, we're a government entity, basically government-sponsored entity. And these are other governments. So the government of Malaysia or a school in Malaysia, they would come in and ask us, how do you do it? So okay. basically we would help them set up a similar program to ours locally there. And usually we would be compensated for our time as consultants. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's our interaction with the international. We can still, you know, maintain our jurisdiction and help this international community. Okay, that makes sense. Another follow-up question. So you mentioned the various categories. That Does that also include AI in medicine? Because that seems to be a hot and upcoming topic. Definitely. I mean, AI is everywhere. I mean, we're still <laughs> learning our way around it and when it's actually needed and when it's just a buzzword. Um, we're trying to build more resources around that. So for example, recently we had an office hour around how can you protect stuff that is not patentable? For example, code or processes or just ideas, services. Um, so we had lawyers that they specialize in that come in and interact with these teams and try to help them build a strategy to protect their ideas without being able to write a patent on it. So we've, we're building more uh, capability around that. Um, and we're definitely keeping an eye on all the technologies coming in that area. And we work closely with other entities that are specialized on digital health or diagnostics that have heavily leveraged AI. So mm -hmm. if we don't have what it takes, at least we're learning who has the resource they might need. Sure. You spoke a little bit about the incubator space. How does the whole incubator space and getting into the space, do you have a specialized timeline during which people have to graduate? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so in terms of eligibility there or, you know, getting priority for the waitlist. So we are looking for people with funding, um, or the, the ability to pay their rent, just like any other landlord. Mm -hmm. um, we are looking for um, a good understanding of their growth rate. Our incubator yep. spaces usually focus on the smaller companies. So if you're planning on hiring 100 people in the first month, mm -hmm. you know, it might not be a good fit. 
Um, there are also certain projects that are not a good fit for an incubator. For example, somebody came to us with the BSL-3, so a very um, biohazardous um, project that was not a good fit for an incubator where you have many companies doing many different things. Mm -hmm. Or if you have something with sensitive material like RNA, you know, the contamination might sure. be, so that might not be a good fit. Are your labs BSL-1 and 2? Yeah, usually that's the level. Um, in terms of timeline, things change all the time because, you know, people will move out usually when they get money and they can get their own space. So, you know, there are two ways out of the incubator. You either die as a company or you grow and you, you know, now have enough money to expand. We try to cap the tenancy to about two years. There have been ex exceptions to that, either shorter or longer, but we do try to you know, if you don't fundraise enough to move out in two years, it's probably not a good sign. And mm -hmm. we do want to give a chance to another small company to do their proof of concept and move on. So that's kind of the rule of thumb, two years. Sure. And do you support in fundraising? Not directly. So it's impossible for us to do business development for everyone we come in contact with because mm -hmm. we work with hundreds of companies. What we can do is to point them in the direction of certain databases. And if they have very particular um, investors they need to reach out to, we might know them and make an introduction. But it's a very um, you know case-by-case -case, um, scenario. We, we can't guarantee that. Okay. And but you definitely provide them a platform to like raise money or interact with more KOLs and things like that, right? Yeah, I would say it's it's definitely a strategy. So you know, uh, understanding how to look for KOLs, how to look for investors, providing the networking opportunities for them to, you know, find these people and interact with them, shake hands, exchange business cards. So um, we. We provide the ecosystem for them to do that and the strategy for them to do that, but we can't do their homework for them. Got it. And you mentioned that you give priority to companies that have funding. So are, are you talking about like NIH or NSF grants, like typically the SBIR grants, right? Yeah. So I was mentioning that in the context of the incubator. So for mm -hmm. you, to rent out space, you need to be able to afford that rent. Sure. So, um, again, we work with a lot of uh, companies even before they exist. So obviously they don't have money, but in the context of the incubator, um, you know, we want to select the slightly more mature um, audience and the grant can be a resource. Uh, grants, you know, can run out pretty fast. So we want to make sure that the company is also viable for additional funding if needed. Okay, and what is what is the stake of QB3 in all this? Do they do you ask for equity, or do, are you just doing it for a service? Yeah, we're it's we we are a nonprofit, so we do have some of our support from the state, um, mm -hmm. and we don't take any equity or any IP stakes. Um, we did start a founders pledge program, which is a non-binding pledge. Um, if uh, some of our companies have a successful exit, then um, they can donate back as much as they see fit. So that's an opportunity for them to give back to the people who help them get started. Um, as I said, it's non-binding, so that's not something that people have to worry from day one. Other than that, we don't have any stake. We, we try to help them 
get those products to the patients who need them. So our satisfaction is seeing, you know, all these medical devices and therapeutics make it on the market and make an impact. And, you know, that's what keeps us going. Okay. And so where do companies go after their time at QB3? Uh, yeah. Assuming just the incubator. Yeah. So the, the good news is that we play nice with everyone. So we're not mutually exclusive with any other program. So a lot of our companies will go either to an accelerator program like Skydeck, IndieBio, Y Combinator, StartX, um, 500 startups, you know, there, there are many nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can go there, they can um, get their own funding and get their own space. Um, they can be bought out by a larger fish um, like a big pharma or a big medical device company, um, they can merge with each other. So there are many exit opportunities. Again, we interact with them usually in the first couple of years when they're very mm-hmm. small and the sky is still the limit. And as they they graduate, they move out of the nest. You know, now they they move into the typical, you know, fundraising cycles, growth cycles, and potential exits. Got it. Let's steer the conversation away from the incubator and talk a little bit more about other services offered by QB3. You mentioned that there are office hours and uh, other lectures and seminars. So what what kind of topics do you address in those seminars? Yeah, so we try to put ourselves in the shoes of the, the entrepreneurs and we actually ask them as well what they need. So there are a lot of logistical things that people don't know. So if you're a trained scientist, you might not understand how the tax uh, cycle works or how to um, get business insurance for liability or how to hire your first employee. So there are a lot of questions around that, that we try to bring in experts like accountants or lawyers that will talk about those particular topics. Um, sometimes we talk about soft skills, about you know how to build your team, make sure that they're communicating and they're working well together. And sometimes we talk about very uh, practical, you know, how to interact with the FDA or how to write um, a new chemical entity patent. Um, so there are all these topics that we rotate through because our audience changes, right? They come and then they graduate. Sure, so sure. we try to bring in sometimes inspirational stories for example we had jennifer downa talking about one of the first companies she was involved in uh, caribou biosciences which was one of our companies mm-hmm. um, and she talked about the whole story how did it happen how she um you know decided to give the chance to one of her students instead of taking uh, you know vc money that would come with the ceo with an experienced ceo we also had wendell Lim, who was um, a faculty professor here at um, UCSF who started a company that in about three years got sold for close to $600 million. So how was that? How did the idea come about? How, did, how was the journey? So we've had also people who failed, you know, share their experience. Like, why did it fail? What happened there? Um, so we tried to have a mixture of very practical topics and then, um, you know, experienced entrepreneurs or investors talking more about the big picture or their own idea. Okay. And so from your experience, what do you think is a good team size to be successful? Assuming that the science is good, the idea is good, everything. <laughs> 
You know, I don't think it's about the size. I think it's about the skill set. And what I do see a lot is, you know, the co-founders tend to be, let's say, two or three scientists mm -hmm. and they have overlapping skills. Like everybody knows exactly the same thing. So then it's difficult for them to identify the gaps and to, to fill in those gaps. Um, I would say it's nice to have a team of people who are eager to learn because all of these, um, you know, information about taxes and about patents, they can all be learned if you ask the right people and if you read the right materials. I have no doubt that intelligent people can figure it out. But um, unfortunately, some scientists, you know, they, they don't care about that boring stuff, the accounting and the law. Um, they only care about the science, but the, the business part of it is needed. So if they're not willing to learn it, I think the projects usually get stuck in the lab. Okay. And so you were talking about incorporation. So what is the process involved and does it change with every state or is that a universal process all through the U.S.? And what does it mean for a biotech company or a small molecule life sciences company? Yeah, so again, I'm, I'm not a corporate attorney, so take this with a grain of salt, but my understanding is that there's certain um, aspects of setting up a company that are um, common throughout all the different states. The difference um, that, you know, kind of influences people to incorporate mostly in Delaware is the, the laws of the state. So the laws might be more beneficial to corporations in certain states so sometimes people will incorporate in Delaware and then register as a foreign entity in California or a different state where they do business. So um, there are different types of companies. Um, so if you are considering um, a limited liability company or an LLC, um, you could have limitations in terms of um, the investors that you can get. So LLCs usually tend to be a little bit smaller and they have funding from either the founders or uh, one or two investors or even um, debt financing. Mm -hmm. C corporations are usually the most common ones for biotech and medical device companies. They will allow um, for stocks to be created so investors can get equity in return for their investment. Mm -hmm. And that will allow the company to fundraise. So that's the most typical company type we see. Some of the projects we interact with actually want to become nonprofits. So that means that they still incorporate as a company, but there's a process of declaring that you are not trying to make a profit and you're showing all your finances. Um, so again, that can be um, a, a different path that companies take, especially with projects like, you know, understanding malaria a little bit better or, you know, understanding um, autism in, uh, in young children, those projects might not be able to make money, mm -hmm. but they're still leveraging science to, to make their uh, conclusions and to, to move forward. So we might still interact with those projects as well. Got it. And do you think companies should incorporate themselves after they have filed a patent, after they have a proof of concept, or can they do it right at the idea stage? Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, we talk about timing a lot. Um, it really depends on that particular situation. So that's why I sit down and I talk to the team to understand theirs. I don't give them a blanket statement. A lot of times the IP actually comes from a university. Mm -hmm. So 
the university um, pays for the patent filing. And then once the company gets created, um, they will license that uh, from the university and pay back the university for the expenses. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the company can make their own IP. Yep. And um, it's kind of a chicken and an egg. They need some proof of concept experiments to file the IP. So they need investment, but sometimes investors won't invest until you have a patent. So, you know, you kind of have to convince the investors that you have a very good plan and a very high chance of success. So they should give you the budget for those proof of concept experiments. Again, that's why usually the universities make the risky discovery and then the companies make the plan for commercializing, you know, scaling up, uh, proving all the, you know, if there are any side effects or anything else. So the idea has already been trialed, uh, tried at the beginning in the, in the university setting and patented. And then the startups usually come in to, to kind of move it forward. Got it. And this might be a very, you know, silly question. So is there a difference between IP and a patent? So intellectual property can be a set of patents. So a patent usually, for example, for a small molecule, that will cover the molecule itself and you know maybe the derivatives of that molecule. So putting different functional groups on it. There are also method of use patents. So that can be you know using the small molecule for different diseases, um, different applications, maybe a detection kit. So you can have intellectual property around different things and that will create your portfolio. So a company might have, you know, a small company maybe has two to five patents, a large company like a pharmaceutical company, like let's say Genentech, they probably have a thousand patents in their portfolio. So intellectual property just means that you have something that you know that differentiates you from other people. Nobody else has figured it out. And that can be a series of patents. Okay, that's useful. We all know that UC Berkeley is the home, one of the homes of um, CRISPR. So let's say there are two companies who want to work in the CRISPR space. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so the, the technology transfer office mm -hmm. will look at the different candidates for licensing that uh, technology and they will see which one is more likely to make it happen. So it's either, you know, the team with the more experience or the team who really understands the science and the market uh, better. So they will basically have a competition. They will ask the, all the candidates. And again, the candidate might be also a large pharmaceutical company. Um, you know, and obviously their benefit is uh, having a larger budget, but they will compare the different options and see which one wins. Okay. So QB3 also does sort of licensing or is it purely the domain of tech transfer offices? Yeah, we don't get involved in the licensing per se. We can try to explain the the one-on-one version to the entrepreneurs looking into it mm -hmm. and guide them towards the right resources. We can bring in lawyers who can explain the details, um, but we don't actually do the negotiation and the licensing itself. Okay, that's helpful. It's been great talking to you and learning more about QB3. Sure thing. My pleasure. Yeah. Going forward, if some listeners want to reach out to you and start their own company, they might do that. 
yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I'm happy to to brainstorm with them and um, try to help them move forward. Awesome! Thank you so much. Sure thing. That was an exciting conversation. You can find more information on QB3 or the California Institute for Quantitative Biosciences on their website, qb3.org. I will talk to you next month with another episode. Until then, stay safe. Thank you.